This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to give you a little bit of the highlights on what is a private place memorandum and why you may or may not need one. I've done a number of episodes on syndications, but... Apparently some of y'all are thick-headed because people regularly come to me and say, I want to raise money, I'm going to have some investors, I'll give them a promote, or I want to promote, I'll give them a pref. Oh, they're just, they're just sending me a check, like I'm doing the work, but like, I don't want one of those PPMs. Okay, and people don't want PPMs for two main reasons. One, it's complicated, so it's hard for them to, them to understand which generally hurts their ego, so they don't admit that, especially because they'll be exposed if they try to explain it to investors. But two, it's expensive, right? I mean, just it just is. Like, you're not going to get a PPM done for $2,000, right? They go, well, just give me one of those LLC operating agreements. Maybe we'll just do a joint venture. Like, okay, well, what's a joint venture, right? So we'll get into that, but I mean, just general rule of thumb, if, if it's me and three other guys and we all are materially actively participating then maybe we're a joint venture but if i'm doing all the work and i have all the skill and expertise and the other three guys are brain surgeons despite being smart guys they're not really contributing to this cause and they're just cutting me a check and then they're getting specified rate of return or specified preferred equity uh, rate of return or a pref they're going to be what we call limited partners or class B members. I'm going to be the general partner, the class A member, or the manager. That's a syndication. You can call it a banana. doesn't make it not a syndication. Why is that important? The Securities and Exchange Commission, they regulate syndications. This came out of the SEC Act, which was 1933, I believe. Basically, it said... If you're offering securities, because you think about it, when I'm when I'm bringing on investors, I'm not selling them real estate. I'm not; they're not investing in real estate directly. They're investing money for a membership interest or membership units within an LLC, typically. And the LLC owns real estate, or one of its subsidiaries owns real estate. So I'm offering a security, okay? And securities are supposed to be regulated. That means, like, if you ever bought like stock in Coca-Cola. You get a prospectus that's warning you about all the scary things that go wrong with Coca-Cola. That's what a private place memorandum is. It's basically the prospectus. But it makes you, if you follow the right rules, it makes you eligible to be exempt from registration. Because Coca-Cola, they can have three guys sit in the corner who are regulatory guys that just sit there for 100000 a year each, you know, batting down the SEC. But little old me in one deal, I can't afford that, right? So I... I just can't raise money. Wait, I can if I do it right. And that's through the private placement memorandum process. The good thing about PPMs is there's no limit on the amount of money you can raise. And you got to structure it right, but you can do them uh, for business or real estate transactions. Today, I'm just going to walk through my outline. I, I have, I actually have notes on this one, quite a bit of notes, because I, 
I just taught some other uh, law clerks and paralegals and associate attorneys at the firm a little 101 about PPMs. So got some notes ready. I generally know most of this stuff by heart, so I'm going to skip around. But basically, document structure, I'm going to go pretty fast through this because it's kind of boring, to be honest. Lawyering is boring at times. The document structure, and this is going to be different for individuals, but it's going to have things like disclosures or notices, some of which are state-specific, a summary of the offering, details on the company, the compensation of the manager and affiliates. Like, I have deals where I'm the syndicator, and I have lots of affiliates. Like, the syndicator is um, FFL, LLC, for Furford and Logan, LLC. The uh, property management company is a custom property management owned by Ferd. The law firm is the MHP law firm, owned by Ferd. The contracting entity, the brand entity, is third floor properties, owned by Ferd. Okay? I just didn't disclose that, right? And, and I'm very transparent about it, right? Why would I not be? Okay, the capitalization, it's like the, you know, the capital stack, sources and uses. And there's a bunch of risk factors, like risks in the offering, the structure, the management, real estate risk, financing risk, tax risk. There's a section on financing. There's a section on the summary of property management, the business plan, the distribution plan, transactions with members and managers, litigation. What is the offering price and how does dilution impact it? What are the use of proceeds? Who are the eligible investors? I'll get into that. What are the subscription procedures? Give me a description of the units. Are there limiting or other provisions? What about conflicts of interest? Like here's a conflict of interest. Ferd also owns other trailer parks. He's not giving hundreds of his time in this trailer park. He might own two trailer parks in this market. Right? That's a conflict of interest. Like this is not my only job to be the manager of this one transaction, this one PPM. There's a section on income tax consequences. That's a big deal. Then generally there's a miscellaneous a glossary, and then there's exhibits. There's quite a few exhibits if you do it right. There's two types of offering. There's the 506B and the 506C. The reason, the way I remember them is B for buddy. Basically. C is for credit investors only, meaning rich guys. Okay, what's a credit investor? There's a number of subcategories, but basically it's you either have a million dollar net worth, not including your home, or you have an income of 200000 each of the last two years with an expectation of the coming year. If you're married, it's 300000 Okay, so that's generally rich guys, especially considering in 1933, that was a rich guy. Nowadays, the million ain't what it worked. used to be. Especially in the Biden economy, it's kind of probably more like, you know, half dollar at this point. But no, I'm just giving crap. Um, 506B, I say B for buddy because you don't have to be accredited. It's a lot of my buddies are not rich guys, right? But they got to, they can't just remember my buddies. It just means they don't have to be accredited. They, can be, they, they do have to be sophisticated. And you can only, you can limit that to up to 35 people. Sophisticated is a technical term. So if I have someone who is uh, a... Real estate and corporate and finance lawyer who is top of his class in law school, number one in the bar exam, and is in his first year of um, practicing law at a securities law firm, and he makes $199,000 a year. Is he accredited? No, because he has no real net worth, and his income is, does not qualify in quantity or in years of quantity. So he's not accredited. But he's, is he sophisticated in this particular financial legal matter or things of this sort? I would argue yes. Let's take a different example. A neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon is the smartest guy in med school and 
has a salary of 500000 a year for his first year in the business. His net worth is negative because he still has tons of student loans. Is he accredited? No. Is he sophisticated? Not likely as it pertains to understanding and evaluating the risks of this investment. It's an odd rule in some respects, but they had to make they had to make a rule. It's a little archaic. Because in theory, the neurosurgeon who makes five hundred thousand a year for three years has but gambles it all the way, is accredited and gets in the deal. But the smartest syndication attorney in the country that makes one hundred ninety nine thousand for five years in a row or for fifty years in a row and donates one hundred percent of the money to charity who has no net worth, that person is not accredited. So they only get into sophisticated 506B for buddy, but not the 506C. The big difference is, practically, is if you're going to market on the internet, you're automatically a 506C. So when you, if you're doing the buddy route, it's got to be people, basically friends and family or people you have a pre-existing, materially significant relationship with. If you're going to be out there like, invest with Ferd, like, okay, you can't put the back, toothpaste back in the tube. You're now a 506C, which means you can never let in only sophisticated investors, meaning only meaning people who are sophisticated but are not also accredited. Some are both. I would argue that I'm both because I meet the income threshold, the net worth threshold, and I think I'm relatively sophisticated at this uh, nature, this type of investment. Okay. Another provision that's key, if you go the 506C route, it's more likely that you verify your investor's accreditation status by using a third-party verification source. It could be some website like Verivest or something. It could be their CPA, their lawyer, their financial advisor that basically vouches for them. Sophisticated, it's not a number game, right? It's a, it's a quote, are you sophisticated? So then you're going to need to do a, a more detailed investor questionnaire asking, you know, basically asking questions about them to ascertain if they are in fact sophisticated because you, the syndicator, could have risk. The purpose of the PPM, I mean, in my mind, one of the purposes is it protects the syndicator in the event everything else, you know, goes goes crazy. So let's say the deal, the deal you're doing just crashes, crashes and burns. It's not really your fault, but it does. Okay, but then it crashes Let's say that tornado comes in, takes out all the trailers, and you let in your brother. My brothers are smart guys, but they're both teachers, so they don't make two hundred thousand a year. And I'm pretty sure they're not manners. And as it pertains to this type of investment, they're not sophisticated. So I can't really let them in as a five hundred six B because they're not sophisticated or accredited. I can't let them in a five hundred six C. They're not accredited. But let's say I make an exception. Because all oh, they're my brothers, and they happen to they happen to have scrounge up fifty grand minimum offering, which they could do, right? They're hard workers. They mow grass in the summers and do stuff. They they got fifty thousand, but I can't put them in my deals. Never have. And if I did, and let's say the deal went south, it's very possible that someone else, likely not my brothers, but likely the neurosurgeon who just lost five hundred thousand, it's likely that guy sues me and. We all know why we use LLCs for protection. Well, the reason we use PPMs for protection, among others, is if all goes poorly, it's another layer of immunity for the syndicator. But if you break the rules, you're in trouble. Part of the original rule, the reason they have these thresholds is the government didn't want Ma and Pa, not Ma and Pa Park Seller, but like Ma and Pa Investor, spending their last 50 grand on a risky investment. So by rule, 
in theory, uh, private placements, private equity in real estate is risky, whereas Coca-Cola is safe because Coca-Cola is regulated, okay? Um, Rich Dad Poor Dad has a number of great books. Most of you have read at least Rich Dad Poor Dad. His second book was Cashflow Quadrant. His third book was Rich Dad's Guide to Investing. I read all of them during my graduate school year when I was 23, and I, I read them back to back. Boom, boom. I read the first book, super pumped, ready to get my day job. Second book, okay, more detail. Still don't have all the nuts and bolts. I actually had to do this. Third book, Rich Dad's Guide to Investing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so ready to do this. And then I got to the part about 506C and 506B, and I'm like, oh, I didn't qualify. So like, okay, great, this, put this on the shelf. You know, don't break glass, come back later. So anyway, that's the, the key thing here. If you follow the rules, you've got some additional protection if things go poorly on the deal. Okay, what are the key terms? Minimum offering. This is the minimum amount of money you need to raise in order to, you know, quote, launch the deal. And if, if you, your investors subscribe, and that's basically the contractual commitment where they say, look, if the minimum investment is 50000 and that is one unit, so the unit price is 50000 if John Smith signs a subscription agreement, which is one of the exhibits to the PPM, and says, I subscribe to give you 50000 it means, but if the minimum offering is 700000 and the maximum is a million, and I only get to six ninety five, there's not a real commitment in the subscription. They, they can bail. But if I get to seven hundred, that's the minimum, they're in, even if I don't get to the full million. So generally, the minimum is what you really need. The maximum is like, okay, a little extra. Like, I really don't need my developer fee. I'd want it, but like, I'll generally make the delta be at least my commission or my developer fee. And sometimes you get other stuff, capex or expansion that is like maximum. And you have to do that's the next term is maximum offering. Because if the maximum is a million, like what if somebody puts in um, you know, for easy math here, um, well fifty into seven hundred thousand is one fourteenth of the LP. Okay, well I go to if I go to a million, the same fifty thousand only gets me one twentieth? Okay, that's not very cool. So what changed? Well, we diluted you. We brought in more people. The GP share doesn't generally get diluted, at least not on a membership unit and a split before the pref. Okay. Next key term, what are the project-related costs? These are things like total purchase price, total project costs, which generally include fees, capex, reserves, etc. And then what are the debt and equity amounts? Then basically we'll put in there what are the percentages or the ratios associated with the same. Okay, next term here, minimum investment. I already kind of covered that. You can basically say it's 25,000, 50,000. Those are typical, but it's really up to you. Unit price, the price per unit is pretty easy. The next one, the promoters care about this. What's the splits? The GPLP, it's really not a GP and an LP and an LLC. It's the membership units. It's the manager versus the investor. And you can have series. This gets more complicated, the series A, series B. Sometimes you'll give different series based on different amounts like I've had deals where if you put in 50,000 you get a different split than you put in 250 then you get a million some people do it based on first people in um, people who sign a debt guarantee things like that that often be a different fee next is the preferred return preferred return is basically the percentage interest or percentage return that the limited partners get in advance of the manager getting any promote and then the hurdles so a common would be like 
a 8pref 3070. That means the investors get 8% return and then any dollars after that are split pro rata per pursue 30% to the general partners, 70% to the limited partners. Additional hurdles could be, but up till an internal rate return of 15%. And then the new hurdle is the GP gets 50 and the LP gets 50. The kind of new splits after a certain hurdle. Think about the Olympic event, like you hurdle, you jump over something. When you jump over a certain hurdle, the things change. Right? I've, I've accomplished this. And then there's, this is often called a waterfall. The you know priority of water falling down different layers. Other terms that are key, a lot of people don't mess with this, but it's pretty sophisticated and we like to do it occasionally. Is you gotta get CPA advice, I'm not a CPA, I am a lawyer. Um, but this is not legal advice. This is public education at no cost to you. Which, by the way, I didn't have this available to me when I started doing this, so you're welcome. The next one is depreciation allocation. I had a whole other episodes on cost segregation, bonus depreciation, real estate professional, all that jazz. Should do more on tax. I haven't really got around to that. I'm going to make a note of that, actually. I got a lot of, I'm a tax dork. So I should do some episodes on tax stuff. Okay, and then next is what's the member ownership percentages. This often tracks with the GPLP splits, but the splits are really the distribution of revenue percentages, not really the voting rights percentages or what issues you can vote on. And then what manager restrictions. It's common for the manager to not be able to change the manager's compensation. Um, but other than things like that, rarely do the limited partners have a lot of vote. The next most common would be the LPs need to approve a sale or a refinance, but uh, definitely manager compensation. And, and then also manager incompetence. You can remove the manager typically for just cause. And they might require supermajority votes for some of those things, not just 51%. Depends on what the splits are. Okay, next, this is what my clients really care about. What are the fees, right? What are the key manager fees? You know, manager, AKA sponsor, promoter, syndicator. Okay, there's an acquisition fee sometimes. There's a disposition fee. There's a refinance fee. There's a debt guarantee fee. There's an asset management fee. There's a property management fee. There, there are voluminous other fees you can come up with. You know, pick your poison. Personally, I like to do less fee and higher promote. So I would argue my deals compared to the competition are less fee driven but i probably get a bigger piece of the pie but i pitch i pitch it to investors is look i have to deliver a certain prep to you then deliver another hurdle before i really make any real money i'm not feeing you to death i do charge a property management fee but i have to hire property management staff including like basic overhead accounting not just the manager on site okay the next key term is distributions to members you know and you can distribute expenses you know generally it's like expenses that get paid first then reserves then debt service then the splits and then paid out you know you got different splits based on operational cash flow refinance cash flow sale cash flow liquidation cash flow and then you should also also a key provision in my opinion is the financial model I tend to put that as exhibit C the business plan with the excerpts from Excel and I also have a pitch deck and then which key amongst this from a narrative is the assumptions. And then structurally, you know, I tend to have an LLC that's a contract LLC or brand LLC, be buyer LLC in the purchase and sales contract. 
And then I have Investors LLC, and that's where the LPs and the GPs have membership units. And then they are a wholly owned parent of wholly owned subsidiaries. The Homes LLC, which will need its own operating agreement. The Land LLC, which will need its own operating agreement. And then sometimes the manager or managers of an LLC. There are some deals where I'm syndicating and I'm the only um, only syndicator. But like my current deals, it's, it's FFL LLC. It's Bird Bird Logan. Me and my dad and my buddy Logan, who's my CFO and CIO, we there we're the manager. So we have our own little LLC and we have our own splits in there. And you know, frankly, none of my investors business if we are one third, one third, one third, or ninety-eight, one and one. It just needs the manager's LLC and then who is the signatory and has an authorizing resolution as the signatory on behalf of the manager, and in this case it might be Bird. All right. Um Next part of this, we, you generally need to get basic data. I have like a 40-question intake form of basic data from the client. And, and sometimes I am the client, right? But, you know, basically information on the sponsor entity, the syndication entity, the deal, the property, the market, the offering description, the types, the minimums, the maximums, some of the stuff we're talking about here. Generally, it would also be great to have third-party reports as exhibits. A lot of people don't do this. Ugh, it pains me, but if you got a zoning letter, tell your investors. You always risk the PPM, the prospectus. It's basically a sky is falling risk document. But hey, look, I'm trying to also raise money here. It's like there's always risk. But, oh, but by the way, I have a clean phase one. Oh, by the way, I have a clean title. Oh, by the way, I have a survey. By the way, here's a zoning letter from the city saying I can do this. Here's development plans. Okay. So that's a key. Third party, I call it Exhibit F, third party reports. Exhibit A is the operating agreement. This is a very complicated operating agreement that tracks specifically the PPM. You cannot use a regular operating agreement. Then I got Exhibit B, form of subscription agreement. Exhibit C, the business plan, which may include the offering memorandum or the teaser and the cash flow analysis. Exhibit D, the form of new member signature page. That's basically the, the uh, signature page to the operating agreement saying, look, you're now a member. You're, you must abide by the terms. So it, I like Exhibit E to be the financing and our term sheet to show the investors, like, look, I have a loan commitment or a preliminary loan commitment. Exhibit F, third-party reports. Exhibit G, in question, investor questionnaire. Uh, if you want to, you know, this generally is best practice to investigate by questioning and or third-party verification whether or not your investors are what they say they are, sophisticated or accredited. Exhibit H, property management agreement exhibit i would be an foreign investor information or notice if you bring on foreign investors there's additional rules there's also rules if you bring on iras or um, foreign money there's a way to do it through a feeder fund through like the cayman islands i personally have never taken on foreign investor money so that's not something i'm an expert on um i've done it i've looked at it and had some people research it on Client PPMs. We do have some clients that have PPMs from Israel and other places that regularly take on foreign money, but um, I've never done it on the syndicator side, so I'm not as sharp on that as otherwise could be. Okay, post raise, meaning post raise SEC filings. This is something people whiff on all the time, I'll be honest. And basically, once you start raising money, you have 15 days to file a notice with the uh, SEC on a Form D. And uh, there's, most states say you have to also file, it's like the, the blue sky laws, you have to also file uh, with the states. The states charge you a fee, 
on the low end, I think some are even zero dollars, but some of them are expensive, like a thousand bucks. You have one investor from California, it's a thousand bucks. So you might spend three, four, five thousand dollars on state filing fees. Plus, you got to do this, and it's a very convoluted process. It shouldn't be that hard, but it, it, it's super frustrating. Uh, save that for another day. Dealing with the SUC on this process, but uh, it's part of the jam, right? There's other options for raising money, like you can do crowdfunding. Um, basically, crowdfunding you can have like lots of little investors. You're only you're only allowed to raise a million seventy in a twelve month period. So, honestly, I've never done crowdfunding. I just saw that on the internet. Um, there's a way to do it. Here's a here's an interesting thing about crowdfunding. Not really crowdfunding is money finders. These people come out of the woodwork. Whenever I'm talking about syndicate and deal, I have there's one particular group of people who I'm not going to denigrate publicly here who come out of the woodwork and say, I'd, I'd like to take all your equity. I, I want it all. I'm like, really? Right out of the gate. I'm raising all the money. Yeah, here's how I work. Um, I go get other people. I know a bunch of rich foreign doctors and these rich foreign doctors are going to put in 50,000 a piece and I'm going to raise it all in a minute and here's what I want. I'm like, what do you want? I thought you wanted the equity. You want to put up the money. Oh, I do, but I want 30% of the GP. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, I'm a money finder. And I'm sitting here like, are you a licensed broker-dealer? No. Well, you're violating the SEC laws, and if I let you do this and pay you 30% GP, we're both going to jail. So, no thank you. This is a big one. You cannot pay people to raise money for you. Unless they're a licensed broker-dealer. Like Merrill Lynch, I'm sure they're a licensed broker-dealer. They can bring you rich guys, okay? So a lot of my clients, not even my clients, a lot of people try to do a workaround. Like, well, tell you what, I'll give you 5% of the ownership, but your job is not really to money raise. You also need to, like, I don't know, approve the budget or go do some due diligence. Make sure you get in a picture. Um, things like that. And they, they come across a co-promoter. People do this all the time. I don't agree with it, um, and they just and they just say, "No, it's a co-promoter. They're they're materially and actively participating." And then it's like an issue for exemption. Um, I think the workaround scenario should be highly scrutinized, but people do it all the time. They want to just say, "Oh, I'm raise money," and it's just middlemen on top of middlemen, and it's a big no-no under the SEC. So don't do it. Um, in my opinion. That's the main blocking tackle. Let me see what else I got here. Um, I got an org chart. I can't really describe that. Well, I can, but I'm not going to because you got to pay for that. Um, information needed to prepare people. I've mostly covered that on the GP, the funds indication, the property, the market, the offering description, etc. So there's lots of good stuff here that you need to you know work through, so to speak, as part of PPM, but just Going back to just the beginning, a lot of people say, I'm just going to do a joint venture. What does a joint venture mean, right? If it's like my dad and myself, like the two of us, we did joint ventures. Hey, dad, you're going to do construction management and property management and source homes. You're going to work on it, okay? And you're going to put in 50% of the money. Okay, what I'm going to do is financial analysis legal analysis and due diligence and collaborate on budget and operation. And I'm going to put in 50% of the money. That's a joint venture. 
if we say, hey, here's the deal. We're going to do all that on the next deal. We're going to get five surgeons who have a lot of money who are rich guys. And they're going to send us 100000 each. And we're going to pay them an 8-pref and give them 70% of the cash flow after the 8-pref. That's not a joint venture. That is a syndication. If you're doing a syndication, you can call it banana. I don't care. It's a syndication. You need to do a PPM or you might go to jail. And this is not like jaywalking. Okay? You jaywalk like you speed. Like, confession here. I speed. I don't speed crazy. I don't drive. I drive for safety. But also efficiency. So I don't drive 25 over the limit. But I might drive 7 over on a regular basis. If I get pulled over... I will pay the piper, and I will admit that I drove seven over, and I will just pay my ticket. And hopefully, as being a lawyer, I'll get some professional courtesy, and maybe they'll give me a, a discount or something. But I am willing to take the risk, because I get everywhere I go seven miles an hour faster, and the risk of getting caught is, and getting penalized is not that great. Okay, This is not seven over. If you jack with the PPM rules and then you get caught, it's like going 100 over. And you go to jail. There's a bunch of guys in black suits that come after people. So be smart. This is the blocking and tackling of a PPM. Until next time, thanks and God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.